Chapter 23, Part 1 of Margaret Sanger by Margaret Sanger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 23, Part 1 In Time We Only Can Begin. Quote, Enough, tis the word of a grand Bashaw. You needn't to bother about the law. He told me they wasn't to speak at all. You don't need a warrant to clear a hall. He told me to tell them to stir their stumps. When clubs is the order, then club is trumps. What else would it be when I'm just a cop, and he is a reverend archbishop? End quote. Arthur Guiderman In confirming my conviction in 1918, Judge Frederick E. Crane of the Appellate Division of the Supreme Court of New York, had for the first time interpreted the section of the state law which permitted a licensed physician to give contraceptive advice for the cure or prevention of disease. And further, he had taken from Webster's Dictionary the broad definition of disease as any alteration in the state of body which caused or threatened pain and sickness, thus extending the meaning of the word far beyond the original scope of syphilis and gonorrhea. But, never satisfied, I wanted women to have birth control for economic and social reasons. Therefore, in January 1921, Anne Kennedy and I went to Albany, to find a sponsor for a bill which was to change the New York law. It was not only a question of amending it, but also a means of educating the public, of explaining our cause through the medium of legislation. Months of preparation were required, hours of tramping the floors of state buildings at Albany, interviewing one person after another, securing promises of help, breaking down hostility. When people said that women who would not have children were selfish and preferred lapdogs, I replied, All right, then it is better for the children not to be born. That type of woman should die out biologically, just as did the different species that were caught in the mire and slime and could not reproduce themselves. It is a principle that applies to human beings also, that they must work through their environment in order to survive. As soon as you could get out of people's minds what birth control was not, they almost invariably said, why, yes, certainly, that sounds reasonable. Many of the lawmakers themselves believed that the measure might be of great benefit, but the party whip cut too deeply. Birth control was once described by Haywood Brown as dynamite from the point of view of the politician. If he supported it, he might lose votes. If he opposed it, he might lose votes. There is nothing a politician hates more than losing votes. He would much rather the subject never came up. One assemblyman from Brooklyn at first agreed to introduce our bill and then wrote... I very much regret, but after consulting with some of the leaders of the assembly, I've been strongly advised not to offer your bill. 
I am told it would do me an injury that I could not overcome for some time. Another refused on the ground of levity from his associates. But a few years later, we found a young, courageous legislator who introduced a bill and secured hearings. Although it was defeated, the atmosphere was clarified. Mrs. Hepburn, who had been in the suffrage movement early and had been one of the sponsors of Mrs. Pankhurst's tour of the United States, now lived in Hartford, Connecticut. Although the mother of six, including the actress Catherine, she retained her youthful face and figure, being almost like a sister to her children, playmate and companion for them at tennis, golf, and swimming. Young men asked her to dinner with the same pleasure that they asked her daughters. Closely associated with her was Mrs. George H. Day, Sr., a grandmother in 1921. She always came from Hartford for every board meeting of the League, and in turn, her house was a place of refuge for poor, worn-down friends of causes. They could go there and be ministered to by a staff of servants and come back rested and rejuvenated. With two such seasoned campaigners to back us, we carried our legislative activities into Connecticut the only state where to use a contraceptive was a crime, as though it were possible to have a policeman in every home. A mere six years had elapsed since the movement had begun. Consequently, that we were now able to get a hearing was in itself a triumph. Nevertheless, no easy task faced us. So much red tape had to be broken through. But here at Hartford we did succeed in finding an introducer who could hold his own under ridicule. Then we had to educate him, feed him with facts, medical, social, historical, so that he could defend his bill. A young priest stood forth as our chief opponent, basing his objections on the laws of nature, which he claimed were contravened by birth control. Fortunately, the committee had a sense of humor. In my ten-minute rebuttal, I was able to answer the against-nature argument, as Francis Place had done a hundred years earlier. I turned the priest's own words on himself by asking why he should counteract nature's decree of impaired vision by wearing eyeglasses. And why, above all, was he celibate? thus outraging nature's primary demand on the human species to propagate its kind. The laughter practically ended the unnatural thesis for some time. In New Jersey, another attempt was made. The law there allowed doctors to give information for a just cause, but they were fearful of including minor ailments under this interpretation. The bill introduced at Trenton had a hearing, but it also failed to pass. The whole thing was nerve-wracking, but was part of the experience we gained. And furthermore, whenever we had hearings, the local work progressed much more rapidly as a result. Nothing was lost, however expensive the plowing and sowing. Apparent defeats were victories in the long run. 
It then seemed to me, from glancing over current clippings and publications, that people all over the world were discussing birth control. The English Baron Dawson of Penn had been court physician to Edward VII and had continued in this same post during the reign of George V. But he had broader interests, too. One of the great events in the history of the movement was his speech at the Church Congress at Birmingham in answer to the doctrine promulgated by the bishops at Lambeth that sexual union should take place for the purpose of procreation only. Imagine a young married couple in love with each other being expected to occupy the same room and to abstain for two years. The thing is preposterous. You might as well put water by the side of a man suffering from thirst and tell him not to drink it. Romance and deliberate self-restraint do not, to my mind, rhyme very well together. A touch of madness to begin with does no harm. Heaven knows life sobers it soon enough. His speech caused an immense sensation throughout England. Headlines and streamers announced, King's Physician Asks Church to Sanction Birth Control. The deduction was that His Majesty was endorsing it, and stolid Britishers were all agog at the idea that Buckingham Palace was now talking about the subject. It was hinted Queen Mary was not overpleased. On this side of the Atlantic, Major General John J. O'Ryan, who had commanded the 27th National Guard Division, lectured on overpopulation as a cause for war. Frank Vanderlip, once Assistant Secretary of the Treasury and later President of the National City Bank, had just returned from Japan, proclaiming that population must be controlled because some countries could no longer feed themselves. Here was an army man on the one hand, and a financier on the other, unprimed, uncoerced, even uninvited, speaking out of their independent experiences. They were voices in the wilderness, oases in the desert, and certainly encouraging historical landmarks. Among uneasy experts, the sentiment was growing that population pressure in Japan would soon create an inevitable explosion. Indeed, one of the familiar arguments in the United States brought forward against birth control was the menace of the yellow peril, by which was meant specifically Japan. What folly to reduce our birth rate when Orientals were multiplying so appallingly fast that the downfall of Western civilization might soon be looked for. India and China were teeming indiscriminately, but their peoples were feeble, inert, and diseased, whereas the Japanese were being reared under German health traditions, were 97% literate, and were technically equipped for battle. Naturally, I was eager to learn as much about the situation as possible and welcomed the opportunity to meet the Nipponese friends of Gertrude Boyle, who had married a gentleman of Japan. They always appeared in pairs of groups of three, four, five at a time, 
talking busily and asides with each other, while I exchanged opinions with one. They were helpful in furnishing me with unpublished facts. The older, conservative, nationalist, militarist party advocated greater numbers, but the young, liberal intellectuals, many of whom had attended Occidental universities, could see the clouds already lowering on the horizon and hoped the storm could be averted by controlled population growth. Atro, a reporter on a New York Japanese paper, had been supplying the last-named group, which in Tokyo called itself Kaizo, meaning reconstruction, with clippings about birth control, and several of my articles had been printed in their publication. The woman's point of view was graphically described to me by the Baroness Shizue Ishimoto, daughter of the head of the great Hirota clan and wife of Baron Kaikichi Ishimoto, a young nobleman who had put in practice his ideals of service. This charming, youthful, and gracious matron, tall for her race and equally beautiful by our standards, very smart in her American street costume, had, in 1919, come from her own land where suffrage for women was still mentioned in awed tones. She had studied our language at a YWCA business school and in three months had performed the extraordinary accomplishment of mastering it sufficiently to speak, write, and even take dictation in English. We quickly became friends, and she at once foresaw the possibilities of birth control in bringing Japanese women out of their long suppression in the family system. She said she intended to form a league immediately upon her arrival in Tokyo, and did so in 1921. During that year, also clinics were started in England. That of Marie Stopes proved popular, although instruction, given by a midwife, was limited to mothers who had already had at least one child. Shortly afterwards, Dr. Hare and Bessie Drysdale, with Harold Cox as chairman of a lay group to finance the work, established Walworth Center, which had a fine gynecological thoroughness and set an example which later clinics in England followed. It was high time clinics were started in the United States as well. After the Crane decision, I had anticipated that hospitals were going to give contraceptive advice. But in 1919, under Dr. Mary Halton's direction, two women, the first with tuberculosis, the other with syphilis, had been taken from one to another institution on Manhattan Island. All had refused such information although most had agreed that the patients, if pregnant, could be aborted. The officers in charge had said they were obliged to protect their charters, and the staff physicians their licenses and reputations. Anything depending on the organized medicine is hard to put over. Though individual doctors may break away, in the long run, most medical progress proceeds by group action. Since the hospitals were laggard in this matter, 
I decided to open a second clinic of my own. It was to be, in effect, a laboratory, dealing in human beings instead of mice, with every consideration for environment, personality, and background. I was going to suggest to women that in the 20th century they give themselves to science as they had in the past given their lives to religion. In addition to the usual rooms, I planned to have a day nursery where children could be kept amused and happy while the mothers were being instructed. A properly chosen staff could enable us to have weekly sessions on prenatal care and marital adjustment. Gynecologists were to refer patients to hospitals if pregnancy jeopardized life. A specialist was to advise women in overcoming sterility. A consultant was to deal with eugenics. And finally, since anxiety and fear of pregnancy were often the psychological causes of ill health, a psychiatrist was to be added. I intended, furthermore, that it should be a nucleus for research on scientific methods of contraception, domestically manufactured supplies of tested efficacy could not, at that time, be procured. Because organized medical support was lacking, I tried to see what could be done with individuals writing to various doctors to inquire whether they were willing to sponsor such an undertaking. Several asked me what methods I was recommending, but Dr. Emmett Holt, then the outstanding pediatrician of New York, whose book, The Care and Feeding of Children, was the Bible of thousands of mothers, invited me to come to his office. Before making any endorsement, he wanted to know more about it. I packed up all my European supplies and showed them and explained them to Dr. Holt, who had called in also an obstetrician and a neurologist, Dr. Frederick Peterson, for the discussion. The usual attitude of the child specialist was, our living depends upon babies, why should we advocate limiting the supply? The more the merrier. If you cut down, you're taking our maintenance from us. But Dr. Holt said, A thoroughly reliable contraceptive would be a godsend to us. If the family cannot afford a nurse, we must rely on the health and strength of the mother to keep her baby alive. If pregnancy can be postponed for a few years, not only the baby who has been born, but the baby who comes after is much more likely to survive. Dr. Holt lent us his name, one of the first important physicians to do so, thus setting an example which eventually others followed. Five or six men and women doctors agreed to stand behind the clinic. But I had to have more than verbal approval. Unless the clinic were to be conducted by a doctor with a New York practicing license, it would not be there to stay. In early autumn, I brought together an interested group to discuss the possibility of a location on the east side near Stuyvesant Square, and Dr. Lydia Allen de Vilbis, whom I had met at the Indianapolis Social Workers Conference, was going to form her own medical committee behind her and build it up. On the basis of her promise, 
I signed a year's lease for a small suite of rooms at 317 East 10th Street, from which a dentist had just moved out, appropriately situated on the ground floor in a densely populated section. The legislative activities and planning for a clinic had taken much of my attention during the year, but the central theme was the determination to hold the first National Birth Control Conference, November 11th to the 13th, 1921, at the Plaza Hotel in New York. I timed it purposely to coincide with a meeting of the American Public Health Association, hoping that if we could only convince these officials of the need for birth control, they would use it in their own work. End of Chapter 23, Part 1